Thanks for watching today at wildwoodchurch.com. Now here's today's message. Good morning, Wildwood. Turn your Bibles, please, to Romans chapter 9, verses 14 through 18 this morning. You know, we gather together as the body of Christ to exalt, to glorify our God. It should not be lost on us that we worship the one true living God, the God who created the heavens and the earth, the God who rules over, the God who holds our days in his hand. That is the God that we worship. He is our God, and Jesus is our king. Amen? Amen. R.C. Sproul points out, as he, in his commentary on this passage of Scripture, he points out that of the three domains of God's sovereignty, most Christians are pretty comfortable with the first two. The first being God's sovereignty over creation. You know, True Christians believe that God created the heavens and the earth. We believe that he upholds the universe by the word of his power. We believe that God is sovereign over creation. He's sovereign over you in terms of your creation. He was sovereign over when you were born, where you were born, to what parents you were born, in what country, in what socioeconomic status, With what opportunities? He was sovereign over your height, your hair color, your skin color, your eye color. He was sovereign over all of these things. You chose none of those things. And think about how determinative each of those is. Most people have no problem that God is sovereign over the moral law. True Christians believe that God has a right to decide what is right and what is wrong. True Christians believe that God's ways are right and that it's his sovereign choice to determine this is right and this is wrong. Most Christians have no problem with God's sovereignty over creation and God's sovereignty over moral law. But Sproul says that where 90% of Christians jump off the train is when it comes to God's sovereign choice in salvation. Now, what could be more determinative and significant in a person's life than their salvation? And the logic goes like this. God spoke everything into existence, upholds everything by the word of his power, has every day of our life in the palm of his hands, rules and reigns as king over the universe and over me, chose when I would be born, to whom I would be born, where I would be born, what I look like. He has a choice of what is right and what's wrong, but I'm the one that is sovereign over my salvation. Romans 9 is very clear. And I've encouraged you guys to be reading Romans 9 through 11 each week. I'd love for you to do that. We'll probably spend about 15 to 20 weeks in these three chapters. If you wrestle with this, if you're part of that 90%, it may not be 90%. But if you're part of that that wrestles with God's sovereignty, listen, I I want you to know it's okay to wrestle with this. I mean, Romans 9 through 11 exist in Scripture because there's a wrestle. 
it, it, this is a difficult doctrine, the doctrine of election, the doctrine of God's sovereignty. But I'm gonna let you know that as a recipient of God's sovereign mercy, that has stabilizing effect when we come face to face, when we can, when we can settle on this, when we can truly understand this, it has settling consequence. And it ought to ignite in us a missional zeal. So let's read here Romans chapter 9, verses 14 through 18. Paul said, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and hardens whomever he wills. Let's pray. Merciful and sovereign Father, humble our hearts. Lord, help us to to come to your word receptive, eager, anticipating. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would uh, be gentle with those that might wrestle with this doctrine, that they would also come to love it as I do and as Paul did. I pray, Father, that you would be glorified through the preaching of your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so, so verse 14 begins, what shall we say then? So as soon as Paul quoted Malachi chapter 1, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated there in 13. As soon as he quoted that, he could practically hear the exasperated moans and groans of his audience saying, that's not fair, Paul. That's not fair. But Paul was prepared for objections and he counters preemptively. Is there injustice on God's part? He knows that he knows that 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 statement, Jacob I love, Esau I hated, that might evoke a sense of injustice. So he asks the question, is there injustice on God's part? And I would remind you of one of the points from last week. Be slow to judge God. Daniel Doriani quoted C.S. Lewis in his commentary. He said, the ancient man approached God as the accused person approaches the judge. For the modern man, the roles are reversed. He is the judge, meaning man is the judge, and God is on the dock. He is quite a kindly judge if God should have a reasonable defense for being the God who prevents war, poverty, and disease. He is ready to listen to it. The trial may even end in God's acquittal, but the important thing is that man is on the bench And God is on the dock. Is there injustice on God's part? Man, should we put God on the the stand and call him to account for his seemingly or seeming injustice? By no means, Paul says. Absolutely not. 
Nothing could be further from the truth. Nothing could be more opposite of what is clearly portrayed and revealed in the Old Testament. There has never been and there will never be a single injustice on God's part. He could never even conceivably give us injustice because what we are due, what justice demands, is that we face the infinite wrath of a holy God because we have rebelled against this infinitely holy God. So for him to show mercy on any is infinitely more mercy than what he is obligated to show. Verse 15, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Now these words come from Exodus 33, 19 and they take place in the context of Moses interceding on behalf of Israel He's interceding, he's asking God to forgive Israel for turning away from worshiping the one true living God and toward worshiping the golden calf. And Moses goes to God and says, will you please forgive them rather than destroying them? Will you please forgive them? And God agrees to forgive Israel. And Moses wanted assurances. Like you saw what happened. All of your people are worshiping a golden calf. You say you're going to forgive them. I'd like to have some assurances, please. Show me your glory. I want to know who this God is that I'm dealing with. Show me your glory. Show me your essence. And God agrees. I will allow my goodness to pass before you. And he says, I will proclaim to you my name, the Lord. So here we have this revelation of the name, the essence, the character of God to Moses as Moses is about to go back down and lead his people into the wilderness. That is when God says in Exodus thirty-three nineteen, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. So God's divine mercy and compassion and grace are a revelation of his name. They're intimately connected. He says, I'm going to show you my name. I'm going to proclaim to you my name. This is going to be important here. I'm going to proclaim to you my name, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy to whom I will, be, I will show mercy. So intimately connected with who I am is grace, mercy, and compassion, and I have the right as God to show that to whom I will. Why? Why does God have that right? Because he's God. Because he's God. Now, it's interesting that in the debate on God's election or the debate about God's election, I never hear people demand that God gives justice to everyone. After all, that, that, that's the charge. Is there injustice on God's part? And so I never hear people say, God, you must show justice to all people. Why is that? When people cry out injustice, that's not fair. They, they never cry out, God, 
Give your justice to all people. Why? Because those people that have, usually those people that are debating this have been the recipients of God's mercy. And we realize that our hope for salvation is not in God's justice, but in his mercy. Those that have tasted the mercy of God would never want his justice. So the debate is never, God, show us all your justice. But the debate is, well, God, why don't you show all your mercy? But here's the deal, oh man. You and I don't have the right to demand God's mercy. Think about the audacity of the creation, you and me. Shaking our fist at the creator. Saying, why don't you show mercy to everyone? How dare you give me mercy and not to everyone? Unfortunately, the audacity of that has seemingly very limited effect on the attitudes of those who have been shown much mercy. Charles Spurgeon said, if there's one doctrine in the world which reveals the enmity of the human heart more than another, it is the doctrine of God's sovereignty. When men hear the Lord's voice saying, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, they gnash their teeth and call the preacher an antinomian, a high Calvinist, or some other hard name. They do not love God except they make him a little God. They cannot bear for him to be supreme. They would gladly take his will away from him and set up their own will as the first cause. That is the first cause of their salvation. If there were any lingering doubt as to which will is the first cause in our salvation, which will is effectual, God's will or man's will, Paul puts the debate to bed in verse 16. So then, here's a concluding thought. Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. God has revealed who he is. He has the right to show mercy to whom he wills. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Thomas Schreiner asserts that this verse excludes in the clearest possible terms the notion that free will is the fundamental factor in divine election. Saint, listen to me. You did not choose God first. God first chose you. And you responded, not against your will. Did you choose God? Yes, freely you chose God. You responded to his grace. But what was first? What was first was God chose you and in your death, he made you alive. I think about this, right? We have several EMT, uh, firefighters, police, first responders. 
Certainly many of them have been on the scene, maybe even been the critical actor in, in this scene. person is dead. And they immediately go to work with CPR. And they resuscitate the person. And the person gasps and takes a breath. Salvation is like that. Can the person say, I I responded? Yes. Can the person say, "I, I breathed? Yes. But what happened first? First, they were brought back to life. And then they responded. When you come to that place, and if you're a Christian, you have come to this place where you have recognized your depravity. And that weight of sin, like a ton of bricks, fell off because you said, Lord, forgive me. And I love you and I want to live for you. Jesus, thank you for grace. Forgive my sin. That happened. And and, and no one forced you to do that. That was your response. But what happened first? What happened first was God intervened in your life. And he brought you out of death and into life. And you responded with faith and with repentance. It's what we call ordo salutis. Ordo salutis. Order of salvation. What happened first? Ordo salutis matters. It has an impact on our lives. And I'll speak to this briefly at the end, but for now, Paul states it explicitly that it does not depend on human will or exertion. How anyone can read this and say it does depend on man's free will is beyond me. Paul states it so clearly, so then it depends not on human will or exertion. In other words, there is nothing that we do to affect our salvation. Unless God shows us mercy by working in us first, no amount of human effort, human exertion, no amount of desire or, or, or works or free will has any saving effect. I want you to consider the concept of presidential clemency here. This is a, I, I think, I mean, all human illustrations fall short, but I want you to consider presidential clemency. One of the privileges of being the executive branch chief the, as the president of the United States is the choice to grant a pardon to someone who has been convicted of a crime. Now, in choosing to grant clemency to one person, is the president then unjust 
for not granting clemency to every prisoner in the country. No. There there is no injustice. The president does not deny justice when a prisoner gets what they deserve, even if another prisoner receives what he does not deserve. Likewise, Esau received justice while Jacob received mercy. But here's the key. No one received injustice. And no one ever has, and no one ever will. Now Paul returns to the Exodus story there in verse 17, this time backing up the story to Exodus 9, 16. He gives us another real-life example of God's sovereignty. He says, For Scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So God told Moses to go to Pharaoh and say to him that by now, Pharaoh, I could have struck you and your people with pestilence and you would have been cut off from the earth. That was the message that Moses was sent to Pharaoh. But God raised up Pharaoh, literally made him stand in order to achieve his purposes. And what was the purpose of propping up Pharaoh as the most powerful man in the world, it was to show that God is more powerful than him and to make his name known in all the earth. Do you remember I said that name was going to be important? When, when he says, I'm going to proclaim my name to you, the Lord, and then he gives the attributes, I have the right to show mercy and compassion and grace. And now he's, he's saying... He, Paul is going back to Pharaoh, where God says that I've raised up Pharaoh, I've given him this power so that I might be proclaimed as more powerful, more powerful. You see, Pharaoh proclaimed himself to be God, and he was worshipped as God, the most powerful man in the world. And God wanted that everyone would know that Pharaoh is no God, but Yahweh is God. That the glory of God would resound from the heaven to the earth. That it would cover the earth like the waters cover the seas. That his name would be proclaimed in all the earth. Now, once again, someone might say, well, that's not fair. It's not fair that you would cause Pharaoh to rise up in power so that you can be proclaimed as more powerful than Pharaoh. But what you need to remember is that despite many opportunities for Pharaoh to humble himself, Pharaoh continued to exalt himself as God. The context of Exodus chapter 9 is the seventh plague on Egypt. We read that God hardened Pharaoh's heart after many times it is said that Pharaoh hardened his own. 
It's like God says, all right, Pharaoh, you want to you wanna be God? You, you want to exalt yourself? I'm not going to contend with anybody. He says in Isaiah 42, 8, I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other. Is this a God you worship? A strong God? An exalted God? A God unlike any other? A powerful God? A God who demands that his glory go around the world? That his name be proclaimed? What would God be guilty of? if he submitted to something else's glory. Idolatry. If he gave his glory to anything other than himself, then that thing would be God to God. And that would make him an idolatrous God. But he is holy. And because he is holy, He will not share his glory with anyone. And he sent Jesus. And what did Jesus come to do? He didn't come primarily to heal the sick, to cure the lame. He came primarily preaching the kingdom of God. And he said, I live only for the Father's glory. And now, Jesus is seated in heaven, enthroned in glory, as the head of the church, Colossians 1 says. He is the head of the church. Colossians 1 says says that he is the image of the invisible God. He's the radiance of the glory of God. And he sits enthroned in heaven as the head of the church. And we are his body. And for what purpose did Jesus come? To live for the glory of God, to exalt the glory of God, that God's name would be known in all the earth. And as the head of the church, his body, brother and sister, we have one purpose, to live for the glory of God alone. Solely Deo Gloria. Amen. We have one purpose, church. We have one purpose. And that purpose, as the body of Christ, who is our head, is to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. That was Jesus' commission to his disciples, to the ends of the earth. And what did did, uh, God want Moses to tell Pharaoh? That his name might be proclaimed in all the earth. It is our task It is our purpose that we would live solely Deo Gloria. You know, one day every knee in heaven and on earth 
is going to bow, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And Jesus, on that day, is going to execute perfect judgment over all the nations. And there will be some from every ethne, every tribe, every nation, who were called unto life, whose names were written in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world was laid. And they will inherit eternal life and they will be the recipient of God's mercy and they will dwell under Jesus' perfect rule forever. We call that heaven. That is the hope of every Christian. That we will dwell with God forever under Christ's perfect rule. And there will be a recipient, there will be, there will be a representative of every nation, of every tribe, of every tongue. And likewise, there will be people from every ethne who receive the just judgment for their sin. Now, who is in each group is not for us to know. I think some people get tripped up in this. Well, who's part of the elect? It's not for you to know. You'll know it on, 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 on judgment day. You'll know it if they accept the gospel or not. It's not for you to know. You go, out, you go out to the highways and the hedges and you compel anyone that would come in to come and you trust God with the results of that. How anyone could think that the sovereignty of God should cause us to be lazy in mission is beyond me. How it could cause anyone to be full of pride is beyond me. Now some people imagine that on judgment day, on judgment day there will be innocent people who look at God and say, how could you judge me? How could you punish me? How could you be so mean to me? They imagine that every person would respond to Jesus if they just had a chance. That, that if they just heard about Jesus, then they would respond to Jesus. I wonder, though, what they do with the thousands of people who personally follow Jesus when he walked the earth. They heard his teachings. They observed firsthand his glorious miracles. I think specifically of the 5,000 that were fed with the five loaves and the two fish. And they recognized that something was miraculous by this. Because the next morning they showed up wanting breakfast. And then Jesus says, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part in me. And what did they do? They turned around and walked away. What, what do these people do with Judas Iscariot who walked with Jesus for three years was likely there when Jesus called Lazarus out of the grave saw everything that Jesus did was loved by Jesus and yet sold him out for 30 pieces of silver what do they do with the nine lepers you remember the ten lepers were healed and only one returned to give thanks? 
What, are, what do you make of the 90% of the lepers that were healed miraculously that failed to come back and to give glory to God and thanks to Jesus? On judgment day, there will be no whimpering. There will be no cries of unfairness. Rather, sin will be revealed for what it really is. Now, I want, you to, I want you to think about this. How do you feel when your sin is exposed? Pretty awful. And unless you live in repentance, what do you do? You clamor. You deceive. You lie. You hide. You, you, you try to direct, divert. You try to blame shift, which was Adam and Eve's sin. Why do we think that it's going to be any different on that day when sin is revealed? There will be no remorse for those that are not in Christ. There will be no remorse. Sin will be perfectly exposed in the perfect light of God's holiness. And what will be the response? There will be deflection. There will be Hatred, there will be, what did Adam do? This woman that you gave me, there will be blaming God. Sinners will be exposed for who they really are by the light of God's holiness. And the response will be gnashing of teeth. Gnashing of teeth is not what people do when they repent and when they feel remorse. Jesus said there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And we imagine that on that day, people will be, oh God, I'm so sorry. The life that I've lived, please have mercy. That's not what's going to take place. What is going to take place is how dare you judge me. How dare you judge me? How dare you cast aspersions on the life that I wanted to live? How dare you expose my sin to the light? And they will gnarl their lips. And they will be forced to bow their knee. And they will reject Jesus in their heart, even as they proclaim with their mouth that Jesus is Lord. And they will be escorted to their torment to the sounds of their own reviling of Jesus Christ. Just like when Jesus was mocked as he was paraded around by the Romans and the Jews. Sinners will get what they deserve. And saints will get mercy. And what is the difference? What determines that? Because right now, if you're going like sinners get what they deserve, I hope you're saying, thank you, Lord, that I don't. Because if I got what I deserved, then I'd be that. That's what I would get. I don't care if you grew up in the church or, or, or if you're coming out of, out of the most illicit lifestyle known to man. 
If you got what you deserved, you'd get that. Verse 18, Paul concludes. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Paul did not shrink back from the doctrine of election, and neither should we. This is not, it's not unfair, it's not unjust. You know what it is? I read this, it is non-just. It's not injustice, it's not unjust, it is non-just. Mercy is non-justice. You didn't get what you deserved. You got what you did not. Charles Spurgeon asks an insightful question here, which you might be asking. How shall those who are subjects of divine election sufficiently adore the grace of God? They have no room for boasting, for sovereignty most effectually excludes it. The Lord's will alone is glorified, and the notion of human merit is cast out to everlasting contempt. There is no more humbling doctrine in Scripture than that of election. None more promotive of gratitude, and consequently, none more sanctifying. Believers should not be afraid of it, but adoringly rejoice in it. We do rejoice in God's divine justice and sovereign mercy. It is the assurance that God is going to hold you to the end. Because it was not we who chose him, but him who chose us. I want to leave you with a few words of encouragement here, two points of application. To draw your attention back to the ordo salutis, the order of salvation, why it matters. Two ways that this should be an encouragement to us. Our missionary zeal and our assurance of salvation. Number one, no one is too far gone. No one is too far gone. Because it depends not upon human will or exertion. And that word exertion is the word used to describe a runner in a race. It doesn't depend upon you cleaning yourself up. It doesn't depend upon your neighbor or upon your loved one cleaning themselves up. And therefore, literally, no one is too far gone. I'm getting a a chuckle out of the news here lately. Kat Von D was recently saved. Now, you may not know who Kat Von D is, but that's kind of a big deal. She was into witchcraft. She was like the, the country's best tattoo artist. She was all into this stuff. She was deep into this stuff. And now here she is attending a small church, praising God, baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, giving glory to him. No one's more, no one is too far gone. Hulk Hogan. Hulk Hogan, apparently, and I don't, no one knows the heart, right? But Hulk Hogan was baptized, professed Jesus Christ as Lord. Those 24-inch pythons, the 24-inch pythons, 24-inch pythons, Right now they're giving praise to God. No one is too far gone. You know, no one was more of an opponent 
of Jesus Christ than the man who wrote half the New Testament and the author of this very letter, Paul. Paul hated Christ and he hated the church. He hated the gospel because he was relying upon works, relying upon the law. I am a good person and I'm going to get God's favor because I have earned it. And then Paul was arrested by Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus and his life was changed and turned around. No one is too far gone. Not your hard-hearted spouse that you agonize week after week. Why won't you take me to church? Come with me to church. Why will you be so cold to God and to Christ? Don't you know there's freedom in the gospel? No one is too far gone. Not your wayward child that is living a life of sin that says, I hate your God. Not your coworkers that make fun of you and scorn you and mock you and, and, and leave you out of their activities and their social events. No one is too far gone. And maybe in this room or watching online today, the, the someone that feels too far gone is you. How could God forgive me? How could I ever be worthy of God's grace? You cannot be. That's what's grace. We invite you this morning to be saved to respond in faith and repent of your sin. Come alive under the power of the Holy Spirit and face not God's judgment, but receive his mercy. There is none too far gone. Number two, saints will be saved. I thought about saying saints going to be saved. Saints will be saved. For those who wonder how many times they can mess up before God kicks them to the divine curb, ordo salutis is a great reassurance. Brother and sister, you did not choose God. If you chose God, if you pulled yourself up by your bootstraps, you said, you know, I'm tired of being a sinner. I'm tired of rebelling against the holy God. I'm going to change my life. I choose Jesus. Well, then maybe you can choose to let Jesus go. And if truly that's what happened, you will choose to let Jesus go. Because that's not salvation. But if you are saved, it is because Christ first chose you. I want to remind you that your salvation is not based upon human will or exertion, but on God's mercy. So you might ask yourself, well, how is it possible that a sinner like me could be saved? Mercy. And what should your response be? Thank you. 
Let me go to my neighbors who none of them are too far gone. That your name would be proclaimed in all the earth. Let me live for your glory. How can you adequately thank God for what he's done to you? But see, perhaps, perhaps that's why we want to make it as if we chose. Because in my choice to get on God's team, well, that's enough. I chose to get on God's team. He should be happy with that. I chose him. He's lucky he gets me. Do you think I speak in too much hyperbole? I've seen this. God, how do we thank you enough for what you've done? Now look, the whole concept of perseverance of the saints, perhaps you've heard of that doctrine. Perseverance of the saints. Do you realize that is founded upon the foundation of election? Now some people call this once saved, always saved. And the heart is there, but it's easy to get this twisted. The whole concept of perseverance of the saints is founded upon the doctrine of election. Perseverance of the saints does not say that no one who was ever part of the church, no one who ever walked an aisle, no one who ever raised their hand in an invitation, no one who ever lifted their eyes to respond to the pastor, no one who was ever baptized will ever one day wake up and realize, I don't believe the gospel and fall away from the church. That is not what perseverance of the saints says. Perseverance of the saints, what the Bible says, is that those who are saved now will always be saved. In other words, they will persevere to the end. And thus you can conclude, if someone made a profession of faith, no matter how sincere at some point in their life, and they no longer believe the gospel, they never were saved. Because what the Bible teaches is that those who are saved will persevere to the end. When I hear of people saying, I was saved in, in high school, and I wrestle with this because this is my story, saved in high school, I left the church in college, I lived my own life, and then late in my 20s or 30s or 40s, I came back to Christ, I would say, no, you were saved. I would say you did something, some kind of religious ritual, but then you were saved. And the evidence is that you're still saved today. The saints will be saved. Paul said in Romans 8, those whom he justified, meaning declared not guilty, meaning saved, made righteous, he also glorified. That's the end goal. The justification begins the moment of your salvation. Glorification is the day that you see Jesus face to face. And Paul speaks of it both in the past tense. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. It's as good as done. If you're justified, if you stand right before God, you are glorified. It's as if it's already done. 
It does not depend upon you clinging to Christ, but rather Christ clinging to you. That's what he says. You're in my hands and my my hands are in the Father's hands and no one can pluck you out. Do you see the assurance of your salvation? If you know that God had mercy on you and you didn't, this wasn't your attempt to be good enough and to affect your own salvation, but someday you just woke up and your eyes were, were enlightened and you saw Christ as glorious. And you said, Father, forgive me. And you have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you and you see him working the fruit of righteousness in your life. Then you can be certain at this moment that you will be glorified you will see Jesus face to face. Philippians 1, Paul says, I am sure of this. How many of you want that assurance of of salvation? I am sure of this. That he who who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Now let's just dissect this for a moment. If you are the source of your salvation, if your will was first, if your will was causative, if you first chose Jesus, then you would have to say, I am sure of this, that I, who began a good work in me, I will try as hard as I can to bring it to completion. But that is not what God's word says. It says, he who began a good work in you, will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Brother and sister, you should rest in God's sovereignty and rejoice and respond with great gratitude and humility and service to him. Jesus said in John 15, 16, you did not choose me, But I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. If Christ chose you, he ain't changing his mind. He's going to complete the work that he began. But watch this. Do you see what you were appointed to? You were not appointed to ride a pew. We do not need anyone to hold the pews down on Sunday morning. God gave us gravity for that. See, right here. These two pews, not going anywhere. We don't need anyone to ride a pew. What we need is people who are abiding in Christ. Christ is abiding in them and bearing much fruit. And and what fruit What fruit? We go all the way back to Exodus chapter 9. God raised up Pharaoh so that his name would be proclaimed in all the earth. And Jesus came living only for the glory of God and he commissioned his disciples, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So Christian, what is our task? To make the name of God proclaimed in all the earth. Amen? One of the ways that we proclaim the name of the Lord is through communion. That is what communion is about. It is a declaration. It is a proclamation of God's glory and what he has done 
through Jesus Christ. While the worship team returns, I want to call your attention to 1 Corinthians 11, where Paul tells us in verse 28, let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Two, two layers here that we need to explore. Number one, do you understand that these elements are symbolic, representative of the body and blood of Jesus Christ, broken and poured out for you because you are a sinner. You are a sinful person. And if it wasn't for the mercy of God and the death of Jesus Christ, you would get exactly what you deserve, which is justice. Do you personally believe that? If you do not, I would encourage you not to... to receive the elements because then you might forsake the body and blood of Jesus Christ. You might take them flippantly without understanding the meaning. The other piece is do you recognize the communal nature of the Lord's Supper? We call it communion. Do you recognize that this is about the body of believers coming together corporately and acknowledging that Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, that what unites us is not our love for pickleball, our love for crafting, our love for potlucks, our love for worship, our love for Pastor Brian, our love for whatever it is, but what unites us is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ our Lord. We take the first part of this song to examine. Examine your hearts. Hey, thanks so much for watching online. I hope that this message has inspired you to greater faith, has encouraged you, maybe convicted or challenged you. We're grateful to be able to provide this content to you online, live and on demand. If you haven't done so already, follow us on Instagram, like us on Facebook, subscribe to us on YouTube so that we can get this content right to you as soon as we upload it. But you know, we believe that as a follower of Jesus Christ, that you need the body of Christ. You need the local church. And so if you're in the Quad Cities, let me invite you to personally join us in person for our gatherings on Sundays at 9 a.m. and 1040. If you're not in the Quad Cities, I want to encourage you to go find a local church that teaches the Bible, that serves the community, that loves Jesus, that gives grace. Well, hey, thanks again for watching, and we hope that you were blessed.